I'm Timothy Putnam, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week, we gather right here to explore the foundations of our faith, to look at the implications of our faith on our daily lives, so that together, you and I can prepare to live outside the walls. We've got a great show for you today. Later in the show, we're going to be talking with Dr. Pia Desalini uh, about what it means for us to be authentically masculine and authentically feminine. She's uh, contributed to a brand new book called When Women Pray, available on Sophia Institute Press. We're going to talk a little bit about that, but much more about her work uh, in moral theology. Uh, So we'll get there. Don't go anywhere. But there's something else big that's going on right now, something huge that's going on right now, and I don't want to miss it. So we're going to talk about that uh, right now. We're going to talk about here we are, coming to the end of the Easter season. Now, I know we've been talking about Easter here for a while, uh, and that's because Easter goes on for 50 days. If you think way back to, to November, we've got this, this strand, this story that's been told in the church. Going back to November, we had the beginning of Advent, where we look around at the world and we say, hey, things are messed up. Everything is not right with the world, but it should be. And that's where we wait and hope for Christ to come and set all things right. And he does that through the incarnation. God comes into the world uh, to, to reconcile the world to himself. So we have this great celebration, and then we have a little bit of a break, and then we come back to, hey, here's Lent. Now I'm going to look and I'm going to see that all is not right with me. I am fallen. I am sinful. I have trouble developing virtue and uh, running away from vice. Uh, And yet, and yet all should be right with me. Uh, Something's wrong that needs to be made right. And so we have that for the 40 days of Lent, and then we come to Easter, where for 50 days we celebrate that in Christ, through his death and resurrection, we have been reconciled individually and communally to God the Father. Now we no longer have to, to run around with covering our heads and ducking the fire, uh, the fireballs and thunderbolts and lightning. Now we can approach God uh, as we would a father. So this is the great celebration that we have for these 50 days. Now, the reason we have it for 50 days is because after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to his apostles and disciples for a period of 40 days. For these 40 days following Easter, he appeared to his uh, apostles and disciples several times, opened the scriptures to them, and, and basically walked around long enough for people to say, see, this is a real deal, right? Uh, he appeared to them so that there would be proof. There are eyewitness accounts, one of which we still have in the Gospel of John, that saw Christ risen from the dead. Now, whether you or someone of that time would believe that eyewitness account is another question, but we do have numerous eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Christ. It's one of those things that really drove the apostles. They were willing to suffer death because they knew it was true, right? They didn't, it wasn't just this thing of, oh, maybe it's right, but gosh, you know, this torture is hard. You're not going to endure torture for a lie, right? But they saw and they touched and they spoke with and they ate with Jesus after the resurrection. And so they were filled with, uh, with passion. Now, we're, we're coming now to that we are at the end of those 40 days. We're not yet to the end of the 50 days of Easter because that 50th day is Pentecost. That's when God 
sent his Holy Spirit on his church. Right now, we're in the in-between period where Christ spent 40 days with them, and they're probably feeling pretty comfortable because, hey, Jesus is back, the party's still going, and Jesus is trying to tell them, well, I'm, I'm back, but I'm back in a different way. Uh, I'm back to show you who I am, and then I'm going to ascend to the Father. Things are going to be different. The relationship you have with me will not be like it was these three years that we walked around uh, Judea and Galilee. And so here, for right now, the disciples are wrestling with the fact that they just now watched Jesus ascend into heaven on a cloud, dumbfounded. Uh, the Gospels read it this way. The Gospel of Matthew, uh, at the very, very end, it says, Jesus approached them and said to them, All power in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So that's that's what we have at the end of the, the Gospel of Matthew. The very beginning of Acts, which is actually a continuation of the Gospel of Luke, that's a really tricky thing there. Uh, Acts 1, Jesus said, uh, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he said this, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him from sight. And while they were looking intently in the sky as he was going, suddenly two men dressed in white garments stood beside them. And they said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing there looking up at the sky? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will return in the same way as you've seen him going into heaven. Now, if you were watching Jesus ascend into the heavens and you're watching him being taken in a cloud, don't you think you'd stare at the sky too? I'd stare at the sky. Uh, and yet, why are you staring at the sky? Were you, were, you, were you not just now here? Did you not see a guy just now go up into heaven on a cloud? That's why I'm looking up in the sky. So here we have these apostles who spend the next 10 days of right now we're in the middle of it because the ascension was on Thursday, even though we celebrate it in most parishes, we'll celebrate that tomorrow. Uh, here on this day, they were probably still hiding out in their room. They're hiding out in the upper room because Jesus told them not to leave Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came. So they're waiting. They don't know what they don't know what they're looking for. They just know that they're trying to be obedient. And this guy just now went up into heaven on a cloud. So uh, it must mean something. You ever felt that way, where you know that God is God, but you have no idea how He's going to come through for you, right? You have absolutely no clue. You're just kind of sitting, hold up in the house, waiting for it. Well, just like the apostles, Pentecost is coming. God sent his Holy Spirit on the church, and it will be unmistakable. So I want to read to you just a little bit about what this means for us, you and me, that Christ has ascended into heaven, that Christ has sent his Holy Spirit in Pentecost, which we'll celebrate next Sunday. What does this mean for us? I want to read to you out of uh, a couple of uh, writings. One is Evangelii Nuntiandi, which is an apostolic exhortation from Pope Paul VI. And he said this, For the church, the first means of evangelization is the witness of an authentically Christian life, given over to God in a communion that nothing should destroy, and at the same time, given to one's neighbor with limitless zeal. Modern man listens more willingly to witnesses than to teachers. 
And if he does listen to teachers, it is because they are witnesses. Recently, Pope Francis wrote an an apostolic exhortation as well called Evangelii Gaudium. And he says, in virtue of their baptism, that's yours and mine, all the members of the people of God have become missionary disciples. All the baptized, whatever their position in the church or their level of instruction in the faith, are agents of evangelization. And it would be insufficient to envisage a plan of evangelization to be carried out by professionals, while the rest of the faithful would simply be passive recipients. The new evangelization calls for personal involvement on the part of each of the baptized. Every Christian is challenged here and now to be actively engaged in evangelization. Indeed, anyone who has truly experienced God's saving love does not need much time or lengthy training to go out and proclaim that love. Every Christian is a missionary to the extent that he or she has encountered the love of God in Jesus Christ. We no longer say that we are disciples and missionaries, but rather that we are always missionary disciples. If we were not convinced, let us look at those first disciples who immediately after encountering the gaze of Jesus went forth to proclaim him joyfully. We have found the Messiah, we see in John 1.41. The Samaritan woman became a missionary immediately after speaking with Jesus, and many Samaritans came to believe in him, quote, because of the woman's testimony. So too, St. Paul, after his encounter with Jesus Christ, immediately proclaimed Jesus, we see in the book of Acts. So what are we waiting for? Of course, all of us are called to mature in our work as evangelizers. We want to have better training, a deepening love, and a clearer witness to the gospel. In this sense, we ought to let others be constantly evangelizing us. Here's the thing. You and I, who have walked with Jesus Christ, who have spent time in Mass, spent time listening to the Word of God, spent time with Jesus, just like we would tell people about a restaurant that we love, just as like we would find a way to work in our favorite sports team into conversation, just like we would find a way to talk about the things we love, we should find a way to bring up Christ in our conversations. Not forcing it, You don't force your way to give a a restaurant recommendation, but you find the places that it's appropriate, and you speak up. And so here on this ascension, as we wait for Pentecost, let's spend these next few days asking in prayer that God would equip us, that he would show us the depth of his love to equip us to live authentically Christian lives that would cause people to ask questions and that he would give us the strength and the courage and the wisdom to answer those questions in such a way that draw people closer to Jesus Christ in the joy of that gospel. When we come back, we're going to be talking with Dr. Pia Dasalini about a new book that she's contributed to called When Women Pray. Then we're going to spend some time talking about authentic femininity and authentic masculinity. You're not going to want to miss it. Stay tuned. Join me over on Facebook.com slash Step Outside the Walls, on Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls, and let's have a conversation about what it means for you, by virtue of your baptism, to be a missionary disciple. We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam, here where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. Today, we have uh, on the call Dr. Pia Dossolini. She's a moral theologian, uh, a theological consultant to the Office of Bishop in Orange, uh, and recently a contributor to the book When Women Pray, available on Sophia Institute Press. Uh, Pia, thank you for being on the show today. Hi, Tim. It's great to be on with you. So I, I saw this book, and I, I was very excited. One, I'm not a woman, as you can tell. But I, I, I noticed. The, the facial hair, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's pretty thick. But I was looking forward to, to having this conversation with you because I've followed your work for some time, and I'm very interested in this concept, which is implicit just in the title of the book, When Women Pray, that there's something about our uh, sexuality as male and female that's more than just biological, but that it, it impacts the way that we interact with the world. Uh, and so just by the concept of when women pray, it means that there's something specific to the way that women pray as opposed to the way that men pray. Uh, so tell me a little bit about how you came upon this book uh, and just the beginnings of, uh, of what your thoughts are on, on that difference. Well, so Kathleen Beckman, the editor, invited me to be part of the book. Uh, it was a very gracious invitation. And I have to say I was a little bit stumped at the time because I haven't done much in the realm of spiritual theology. Mm -hmm. And yet I had all these things coming at me that were in the spiritual realm. And I, I ran it past my spiritual director and he said, well, do you think maybe God's trying to tell you something? <laughs> I thought, well, maybe, maybe he's right. And so it was, this is, this is a completely new area for me to work in. And I was, I had a hard time wrapping my head around it, but really it, it all kind of came crystal clear to me as I describe in my contribution to the book. I had a friend who was in a, a very difficult situation, terrible situation, and I reached out to some other friends, all women, and to ask them to pray for her. And I just knew that these are, you know, your prayer warrior types. Like, mm -hmm. They're busy. They got a million things going. They're taking care of kids. But I know that I can count on them for prayers. And, and I explained a little bit of the situation, and I knew that they would be very sympathetic. And so I was just so struck because what they responded not only with prayers, but they said, well, we want to send her a care package. We don't need to know who she is, but if we prepare a care package, will you send it? And mm -hmm. it was it was very beautiful to me because they're not concerned just with the spiritual, but they also, you know, the, the physical world, <laughs> the, the tangible world, right? Mm -hmm. And so they prepared this lovely care package that included, uh, in, in addition to nice little treats and so forth, actually included several hundred dollars worth of gift cards that they had collected from their friends. And again, this was all women, and it just really struck me. I, I didn't grow up with sisters. I had all brothers. And I there was a sisterhood that I experienced here. And then I started to realize it was kind of, you know, a looking backwards where I'm thinking of my own prayer life and my own relationship with women. And there there is a certain familiarity where, I mean, I, I have wonderful male friends. Uh, I, I have a great husband. I have, you know, priest friends and everything. But there's a way in which I can text you know, some of my close friends and just say, please pray for me, you know, and I'm in panic mode. And there's a rapid response mm -hmm. and I, I know it's going to happen. And so I just started to unpack this and, and realize that the, there's something here. And I, you know, I've done the academic work talking about the complementarity of women and men. And I, w what I've come to there is uh, very much in 
I mean, it's, it's what the church teaches, right. but it hasn't been enunciated very much. And that is that we are each called to live maternity or paternity, whether we're married or not, whether we're religious or not, whether we're single. As a man, you're called to live paternity and everything. And as a woman, you're called to live maternity. And the wonderful thing is, is that you can't stereotype this. And you look to the examples of the saints. You know, I hear people say, well, no, wait a minute, you're going to stereotype this. I don't want to be, t- you know, stuck into some box. And I push back and I say, wait a minute, look at the saints. Mm-hmm. Show me the stereotypes there. Because the saints are just far, they're so far ranging. And, um, it, it, and you see both women and men who are saints nurturing, right? But they right. nurture in different ways. And the women themselves, there's, you can't say that they all nurture in the same way. And yet, insofar as they embrace their femininity and are really living to the fullness of their sexuality. And because I, I also... In my work, I want to challenge people. I don't think sexuality just means what you do with your genital parts. Sexuality right. is who you are as a man or a woman, right? Mm-hmm. And again, that's going to be different for different people in different walks of life. But if we look to the examples of the saints, we see how they lived that out in a variety of ways. And yet it was authentically masculine or authentically feminine, depending on whether they were a man or a woman. And some people get dissatisfied with me. I mean, I have students that they want a checklist, you <laughs> right. know, and, and I had one student, I think about two years ago, she was so, she was great, brilliant student, but she really wanted that checklist, you know, and I said, I, I can't give it to you and I'm not going to on purpose because I don't think that's the reality. I don't think you could hold up a checklist and say, this is what it means to be a Catholic woman or a Catholic man. Um, uh, yeah. We'll come back and really break that out as we get into the second segment, but I want to stick for a moment with uh, with this idea of how our sexuality informs our our prayer life, and you mentioned in in your chapter and your contribution to this book, when women pray on Sophia Institute Press, you mentioned that we live out our soul is informed by our body, and that in some way that the way that our soul interacts with God is is informed by and shaped by uh, the fact that we are biologically and and spiritually male and female. So talk just a little bit about what you mean by that. Well, I think that one of the things I find interesting is that most of the heresies in the church have to do with the tension between body and soul. Mm-hmm. And John Paul II, St. John Paul II, in his document, Letter to Families in 1994, said that we're living this new Manichaeanism, where there's this separation between the body and the soul. We're living as if we're disembodied spirits and despiritualized bodies. Mm-hmm. And um, I, this union, I, we find it in our anthropology, and it goes back to Aristotelian anthropology, and, and then Thomas Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas, right. builds on that, meaning that we have a soul and a body that are united. They come into existence at the same time. And that body, that soul, it's completely blank. It's not like the soul is out here in some alternate space or right. something communicating with God. No, it is tied to this particular body. But think about it. The mind is is completely blank, and it, it receives all of its knowledge. It begins to receive through the senses of that body. So what I maintain is that because we're receiving that knowledge through a sexually differentiated body, that is either male or female, and, and the science on this is fantastic. I mean, every cell in our body shows that we are either male or female. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what we do with that body. <laughs> right. I mean, and a lot of people are doing some very interesting things, but that what every cell is going to reveal that we are male or female. And so what I argue is that 
everything then coming into the soul, all of the information that's coming into the soul is coming in through a sexually differentiated body. And I think that the impact of that on the soul is significant. And, and that is the way in which we begin to experience reality is through a sexually differentiated body. We don't have a, the soul does not experience reality apart from the body. Right. And, and I think that I grew up uh, Protestant and, and recently came, 2011, I came into the church. But I, I've seen in my own heritage this idea that, uh, oh, well, you know, when I die, my, my spirit's with God and you can do whatever you want with this body. Uh, and, and there really is this separation of thinking somehow the body is unimportant uh, to, to our eternal destiny. And yet we say in the creed, I believe in the resurrection of the body, and like Christ, it's it's this body, the one that I have right now, and the one that I'm taking care of or not taking care of right now, that's going to be resurrected and and brought into my eternal reward, whatever that happens to be. Uh, and, and so, there's a in Catholic theology, which I think even a lot of Catholics miss. There's this idea that this body that I have right here is very important to the way I live out my spirituality. Absolutely. It is this body. And because, why? Again, why? Why? Because it's through this body that we experience reality. And the ultimate reality is God. I mean, Pope Francis spoke about this a couple of years ago in regards to gender ideology. And he s- says, you know, it is it, it, as Catholics, we are embracing reality to the fullest. Mm-hmm. Right. And and that reality is experienced and, and embraced through this particular physical body. And again, we have so many tensions throughout the history of the church because it's hard. And, and, and the secular philosophers as well. I mean, Plato struggles with this. I mean, this is not something is, this is, this is the, the human tension. How do you get right. the body and the soul to fit together? And what is their relationship? Uh, but there's something so profound there because it is through this particular body. And, and remember, we're called tabernacles of the Holy Spirit. Right. And that doesn't mean just my soul. It is mm-hmm. this particular body. And the bodiliness is so important. Uh, one of the things that I frequently point to when I'm talking about Mary, you know, as you know, Protestants have struggle with Mary and don't have the same concepts of Mary, the mother of God that we do. Well, there's a, you will note in art at different times, particularly during the Protestant Reformation, where the role of Mary is being challenged. Uh, the art suddenly takes on a very explicit depiction and you will see pictures of Mary cupping her breast to feed the infant Jesus right, right. and some people get really even to in this day and age they get scandalized by that and say like, no i mean what, what what those artists and also guided by theologians are pointing to is this really was a woman who was the mother of God, yeah. and and her body was part of that. And so it's a brilliant depiction. And of course, you have Michelangelo, and he was misunderstood even in his own time. But it, so it is it is this constant tension, and yet it is with our bodies that we are called to 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 worship God and to interact with Him. Mm-hmm. We're talking with moral theologian Dr. Pia Desolini. She's a theological consultant to the office of the Bishop of Orange in California. She's got a, a contribution to a new book called When Women Pray, available on Sophia Institute Press. That's sophiainstitute.com. Why don't you continue this conversation with me over on social media, facebook.com slash stepoutsidethewalls. Twitter, the handle is at Outside the Walls. I'm going to post a few articles by Dr. Desolini for you to take a look at and interact with. We'll be right back right after this.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam, and today we have on the show moral theologian Dr. Pia Delcelini. She's a theological consultant to the Office of the Bishop of Orange. She also has a website you can go and visit her over at moraltheologian.com. And how did you snag that? I guess most moral theologians aren't really uh, technologically savvy. You know, I had a brilliant listener who, uh, because I'm on Teresa Tomio's show mm-hmm. we, on a regular basis, and this listener emailed me and he said, because my website was piadeseleni.com. I mean, right. it still is, but he said, your name, nobody knows how to spell it. And he <laughs> said, moraltheologian.com is available. So before I even replied to him, I went online and bought the domain. So yeah. it was thanks to that brilliant listener who was just smart. I mean, I, yeah. I was very fortunate. And he, he's, he heard me telling the story on radio a couple of years ago and he emailed me to say, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Do I get a finder's fee? <laughs> <laughs> well, when I start making the big bucks, we'll talk. Right, right. <laughs> So we're talking about, uh, you, you have contributed to a new book called When Women Pray, available on Sophia Institute Press. You also, this is kind of your your expertise. Uh, you wrote a book called Woman as Imago Dei, uh, this idea that there is something very specific to uh, what it means to be woman, what it means to be feminine, that reveals something about God to us as, as humans, Yes. Right. And I'm just going to interject here before you get peppered with questions. That book is out of print, but will be republished as an ebook as soon as I finish the forward to it. So hopefully in the next few months, that will okay. be available as an ebook on Amazon. And uh, it is academic. Mm-hmm. So if you're having trouble sleeping, it works really well. <laughs> but if you persevere, I think you'll, I think you'll enjoy it. So we're talking about uh, the fact that our sexual difference is more than just biological, but that it does inform who we are and, and make us uh, different, right? We, are, I am different because I am a man, and I'm going to do things as a man differently than, than a woman would do that same thing. Now, every time I've come up with this uh, and tried to wrestle with it on my own or explain it to other people— this idea of complementarity that the church teaches. I, I get some pretty strong pushback uh, of people saying, well, no, lots of people are nurturing or lots of people are assertive or lots of... And it's like we have this idea that the whole concept of complementarity is wrapped up in stereotype and that either I'm going to accept that and live that out uh, as a close-minded person or I'm going to reject that and reject any difference between uh, man and woman, or I'm going to accept that the theory is true, but then assume that that means that I must therefore not be truly masculine or truly feminine and throw my identity somewhere else, which is where we get into gender theory, rather than finding the nuance uh, in what it means for male and female to be complementary. So talk to us a little bit about what the church says about complementarity. So St. John Paul II talks about this. He's, he points out that the differences between men and women are constructive. We were created differently, right, mm-hmm. for a reason, and, and to work together. And he builds this out. He, he, he fleshes this out in his Theology of the Body. Uh, but he point the, the, the really important part that just for, for our purposes in this short time is that we were created with these differences, right? We mm-hmm. were meant to get along. The battle of the sexes does not start. I mean, he doesn't say it this way. This, this is my language, but right. it's it's the plain speak version of the Pope. The battle of the sexes starts after 
with sin after the after the fall that's when the that's when the tensions begin right so we have to be very careful we tend to see the the differences in opposition and yet we're not they, we weren't created to be in opposition we were created to be equals right. uh, thomas st thomas has a wonderful part where I, I think he i think he gets this from an old jewish proverb which is that he says a woman was not created from man's head to rule over him mm-hmm. nor from his foot to be ruled by him, but from his side to rule with him, mm-hmm. which is profound and right. beautiful. And and that's what we were, those differences were meant to fit together. I mean, think of it as a puzzle. It was all, or a mosaic. I like mosaics better than puzzles because they're more in depth. Mm-hmm. But all these pieces were, they create something beautiful. And so instead, what what's happened is we're, we tend to look at the effects of sin, which is the battle of the sexes. We look, we see the domination of men. We see women not standing up for themselves, not being strong. And we say, there's something wrong with that. Well, there is, there is something wrong with that. But the problem is not that these, it's not these particular roles. It's that we're not living these virtues. And so for, think of how the the saints, I I mentioned earlier how the saints live all of these virtues so different, right? Mm -hmm. St. Catherine of Siena was assertive. Right. I mean, she stood up to popes. You know, I, I love the artistic depictions of her because it's just fantastic. You typically see this big papal throne, and here's Catherine of Siena, and they usually kind of make her look very diminutive and small. And here's the the pope, and she's telling him, "Get back to Rome, hurry it up." Right. And and then at the same time, I mean, look at the assertiveness of Saint Joseph. Right. It was very different. Look at the assertiveness of Saint Augustine. All these different saints. They, they live out this assertiveness in a different way, right? Mary's assertiveness, Mary, the mother of God. And we really don't see anything until the wedding of Cana. Right. And then she says, do what he tells you. And when, I mean, when you read that, there's a certain, I mean, it's, when I read that, it's like, okay, yeah, whatever you say. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> so it, it, this is what I want to propose is, first of all, look back to, you know, yes, there are tensions. Yes, there's the battle of the sexes. But look back to how we were created and that those differences, we were created with these differences, and we were not created for the battle of the sexes. We were created for this profound union uh, with each other, and particularly between husband and wife. And that's what we need to recover in terms of understanding, you know, what it means to be nurturing and so forth. Again, that plays out so differently for so many people. And I, I encourage people keep going. I mean, spiritual reading should be a part of all of our lives mm-hmm. and a really easy thing to do. I mean, for me, sometimes I find it much easier to read lives of the saints. Right. It's just easier. And, and it's, great though because you just keep reading about the lives of the saints because you're going to see how different they all were and you're going to read them and you're going to say oh wait a minute identify with this or identify with that and it they all lived out these virtues in a unique way but it was always consistent with their masculinity or femininity and I, you know saint john paul ii also said at one point we have been freed from the box of so-called feminism and that's where these stereotypes don't work. I mean, break free of them because that is not what the church is proposing. Now, let's talk about this because you've done quite a bit of work with this idea of of new feminism and how that pushes against what we generally in the West consider to be feminism. There, there's still this empowerment that comes with new feminism and that, that finds the, the, the profound dignity of, of the woman and, and her empowerment to work in all sectors. But how is that different, this new feminism or this Catholic feminism, from what a lot of conservatives would push against? 
I, I think a lot of conservatives are very frightened by the word feminism. Mm -hmm. and But I say, well, the Holy Father himself used the term new feminism. Right. So maybe there's something to it. I mean, maybe the Holy Father knows something that we don't know. Um, and I would challenge people also to go back to the roots of feminism. I mean, the roots of feminism uh, was in here in the United States, uh, at least what we know is mainstream feminism, it was women wanting the vote. And why did they want the vote? They were incredibly pro-family and pro-life. Mm -hmm. They wanted to work against abortionists. That was They saw abortion as a great evil. They also wanted to protect the family. And what they believed was that women would vote in a way that was more protective of the family. And frankly, we've seen this you know, it, we've seen this play out in a parallel world with the microloans. Uh, right. The microloans, they found that if they lend to women, they have a much higher success rate than if they lend to men. And it, it's that so, the mother of a family responds differently than the father does. So talk a little bit about what a microloan is for those who, who are unfamiliar with the term. So microloan, um, this is, Muhammad Yunus is one of the people that has spearheaded this. Others have promoted this as well. It, Secretary Clinton did. Uh, but what it is, is taking a loan, and it can be something like as, as $50, $25, $200, and giving that to an individual in the developing world. Mm -hmm. And they are able to become self-sufficient. They are able to, I don't know, start a small business, buy a sewing machine, buy some chickens, buy some cows. Right. And with this little loan, I mean, a loan that to those of us in the Western world is in, insignificant. I mean, we spend more on this thing on, on coffee every month than, right. you know, it, it's just such a small amount. And yet it transforms them. It gives them the capital to be able to create some type of a small business that mm -hmm. supports them and their family. And so what we found or what they've found is that these, when these loans are given to women, they are overwhelmingly more successful than when they're given to men. And I think it's because of the, I mean, John Paul II talks about this. It's the woman's ability to see the person. We are, I think women tend by and large to see the person and to be more connected. And so a woman with a family is, uh, she, she's sensing that immediate tie in a different way than the father does. And so the father, you know, he might hear of a great tip on, uh, at, on a race or he gambles it. And it's not that he doesn't feel the tie to the family. Um, he does. I think he wants to provide for his family, but he He's not seeing. He's more likely to, to not. He's more likely to not see that this is ac actually quite fantastical. You know mm -hmm. that you're going to win this, this game or this bet. And you know, yeah, he wants to do it for his family, but it's just it's not concrete. Whereas the woman is, frankly, more practical mm -hmm. in that regard. Yeah. And you talked very early on that we're all called to a spiritual fatherhood or a spiritual motherhood, even if we're not uh, fathers or mothers in the biological sense. And so what I hear you describing in this microloan sense is that there is this maternal instinct to take the materials that are present right in front of me and to use those for the benefit of the family rather than maybe this riskiness of saying, I'm going to take what I have and try to expand it for, for greater glory. And, and Tim, I want to emphasize too, this is not, these are not loans to specifically Catholic cultures. They're mm -hmm. Catholic, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim. Uh, they're all these different cultures. So this is something, it's pointing to the universal, which is not just simply what we as Catholics experience or believe. We've been talking with moral theologian, Dr. Pia Desilene. You can find her over at moraltheologian.com. Also check out the new book, When Women Pray, available on Sophia Institute Press, sophiainstitute.com. 
Join me over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. We'll be right back right after this. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on our daily lives. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. Today, we've been talking a little bit about our sexuality, specifically what our sexuality, male and female, uh, does in our souls and in our spirits and how it makes us unique, not just merely biologically, but also spiritually. We've been talking with moral theologian, Dr. Pia Desilini. You can find her work over at moraltheologian.com. You can also, if you missed any part of this show or want to share it with your friends, have no fear. It's going to be archived over at outsidethewalls.com. You go there, not only find this episode, but every other episode we've done. So uh, I want to encourage you, go take a look at it. Now, today's conversation is an important one because this idea that men and women are different uh, creates a dichotomy from people who either believe that it's true and jump to stereotype or from people who deny that it's true and, and reject any idea that there's difference. And both of these go outside of what the church teaches us. Uh, the church looks at our authentic masculinity and authentic femininity, uh, not based on specific virtues, because we're all called to the virtues, uh, not based on specific personality traits, because those are different from uh, person to person. Uh, but rather that there's something in the way that we interact with God and with one another that reflects masculinity. Yes, everyone's called to nurture, but we nurture in different ways. Everyone's called to uh, perhaps be assertive or at least bold, uh, but we do that in different ways as male and as female. And so there's this idea that I've seen that authentic masculinity is missing in the church. Well, no, it's not. First of all, the church in all of its actions, and I love this, this statement, uh, the church in all of its actions is feminine. We respond to God, the Father. We respond to Jesus, the bridegroom, as the bride of Christ. So all of our responses to God are feminine. But there's this idea that, quote, authentic masculinity, close quote, is missing from the church because of a certain style of music or because men aren't showing up and being active as lay people. Well, this simply isn't what what's true. Masculinity can't be summed up by saying, well, men are rugged and outdoors and assertive and competitive. That's simply not a universal experience that you can, can point to. And you can't turn and say, well, uh, women are naturally nurturing and they're naturally more timid. And that this just simply isn't uh, a universal experience. And yet, even though we can look at stereotypes and say, well, that's not what it means to be male and female, the church does say that there are differences. There, there is something within our spirits that, that we can shine through as authentically masculine and authentically feminine. And this is an important thing that we'll probably, uh, I'll look for some articles to put up and we'll likely talk about this again in the near future. But, but for now, we need to go ahead and <laughs> we're running out of time. We need to move on to our readings uh, from scripture. We're going to do, take our reading today from the Ascension 
which this is the, the event in history where Christ ascended into heaven. He rose from the dead, spent 40 days with his disciples, and then he ascended into heaven on Thursday. Now, lots, some, lots of places will celebrate that on Thursday. It's a holy day of obligation. But uh, a number of places have pushed that uh, to celebrate on Sunday. And it's not really universal, even within the United States. Some dioceses do it on Thursday, some do it on Sunday. So uh, so today we're going to take our readings from that Holy Day of Obligation, from the readings of the Ascension. And that reading is going to come from the book of Ephesians. It's the epistle reading. And he says this, Brothers and sisters, may the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation, resulting in knowledge of him. May the eyes of your hearts be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope that belongs to his call. What are the riches of glory in his inheritance among the holy ones? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power for us who believe? In accord with the exercise of his great might, which he worked in Christ, raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every principality, authority, power, and dominion, and every name that is named not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things beneath his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. And that reading comes from the book of Ephesians. And, and I bring it up there because the, the response there is brothers and sisters. There's this, this idea that each of us is going to respond to Christ, and yet we're distinct Right. We're both mentioned there. Brothers and sisters, may the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, here God is mentioned as Father, and we see a, a lot of other uh, aspects of that. But this idea of Father is, again, not, not biological. God is spirit. He has no body other than the body of Christ, which is biologically male. But God as Father stems more from his relationship and the way that he interacts with the world than it does with any uh, biology or any gender, because God is not uh, male or female. Uh, in fact, as, as males, we, we reflect the image of God. And as females, you reflect the image of God in a different way that I can never do. I, I, can, I can't fully uh, reflect the image of God by myself. Uh, and so we are meant to, to complement one another in that, that I can reveal something to you about how God uh, interacts with the world. And you, you reveal something to me about how God interacts with the world. And so th th there's this, uh, this we have need of one another. There's this necessity that we be in communion with one another as we respond to God as we, the church, the bride of Christ, turn our attention to our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, uh, and and come into union with him. Now, today in our conversation with Dr. Pia Desalini, we, we spoke about the book that she contributed to called When Women Pray, available on Sophia Institute Press. And I wanted to explore that a little bit further today in our reading from church history, which we get out of the breviary. And, and it comes from uh, the writings on Revelation and on Trials by St. Mary Magdalene de, de Pazzi. Uh, and she, she was known as the ecstatic saint. She was given these—she was a Carmelite 
uh, who has given these wonderful gifts of the Spirit. And so I wanted to listen to her prayer, this invocation to the Holy Spirit, so that we might have an example of the way that women pray. I love this. It says, You, the Word, are most wonderful, working through the Holy Spirit to fill the soul with yourself so that it, so that it is joined to God, grasps God, tastes God, and absorbs nothing but God. The Holy Spirit comes into the soul signed with the precious seal of the blood of the Word and of the slain Lamb, or rather, that very blood urges it to come, although the Spirit moves itself and desires to come. The Spirit, which moves in itself, is the substance of the Father and of the Word, and it proceeds from the essence of the Father and the good will of the Word. It comes into the soul like a fountain, and the soul is immersed in it. Just as two rushing rivers intermingle in such a way that the smaller loses its name and is absorbed into the larger, so the divine spirit acts upon the soul and absorbs it. It is proper that the soul, which is lesser, should lose its name and surrender to the spirit, as it will if it turns entirely toward the spirit and is united. The spirit dispenser of the treasures which lay in the lap of the Father, the guardian of the deliberations which pass between the Father and the Son, flows into the soul so sweetly and imperceptibly that few esteem its greatness. It moves itself by its own weight and lightness into all places that are fitting and disposed to receive it. The word is heard by all in the most attentive silence, through the impetus of love, the unmoved yet most perfect mover, infuses itself into all. You do not, O Holy Spirit, stand still in the unmoved Father or in the Word, and yet you are always in the Father and in the Word and in yourself and in all blessed spirits and creatures. You are the friend of the created because of the blood shed by the only begotten Word, who in the greatness of his love made himself the friend of the created. You find rest in creatures who are prepared to receive you, so that in the transmission of your gifts they take on through purity their own particular likeness to you. You find rest in those creatures who absorb the effects of the blood of the word and make themselves a worthy dwelling place for you. Come, Holy Spirit. Let the precious pearl of the Father and the Word's delight come. Spirit of truth, you are the reward of the saints, the comforter of souls, light in the darkness, riches to the poor, treasure to lovers, food for the hungry, comfort to those who are wandering. To sum up, you are the one in whom all treasures are contained. Come, as you descended upon Mary that the word might become flesh, work in us through graces as you worked in her through nature and grace. Come, food of every chaste thought, fountain of all mercy, sum of all purity. Come, consume in us whatever prevents us from being consumed in you. That beautiful and insightful invocation of the Holy Spirit comes from writings on revelation and on trials by St. Mary Magdalene de Pazzi. That's all the time we have for this week. Outside the Walls is made possible by the generous contributions of our friends of the show. 
Find out showtimes and more information over at OutsideTheWalls.com. Join us over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls and on Twitter, the handles at outside the walls. And let's keep this conversation going all week until next week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.